Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cocciolino. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers, Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us, and my binaural production engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And if you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is the legendary John Michael Greer. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me on. So, um, you know, I guess the first book I read by you was the book on geomancy because you're one of the very few people have actually written a book on geomancy mm-hmm. and um you know when, and i was reading it and um i don't know to me when I, when I first started looking at it i was like is geomancy sort of like the beginning of divination in the occult and it's like things like sacred geometry is that the question you want me to answer? Mm-hmm. Or shall I, shall I just run with it? Run well, with okay, it. <laughs> Geo, run with it. Okay, great. Geoman, let's, geomancy, it is a system of divination. It's the beginning of it. There are many different kinds of divination and occult practice these days. Um, geomancy has used to be extremely popular. Um, partly that was back in the days before um, everybody had computers on their desks, casting a horoscope to do astrology with was not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, try it sometime, just you know, doing it using tables and math. It, it takes a while. You can cast a geomancy chart in about in about five minutes, mm-hmm. less than that when you're used to it. And so it was very very popular for a long time, but it kind of it kind of drifted out of of common use. Well, long before we got computers, it's around the 16th, 17th century. It, it kind of drifted out of popularity, complicated reasons behind that. But there were versions of it passed on in several different um, occult schools and things like that. The Golden Dawn taught it and so on. And it was by way of a cheap, ta- a cheap paperback that I learned about it in 1976. And I was going, wow, this is cool. So I practiced it and I did what I could with it. But the material that, that was available on it was not very good. So what ended up happening, um, fast forward um, many years, fast forward quite a few years, about 25 years actually, and I was no, about 15. I was going, I was, I was at college then, and I, I was learning Latin. Long story, and I happened to find a book on geomancy that included the untranslated Latin text. It, well, the book was in French, which I shouldn't read too well either. But it had tucked in back this Latin text on geomancy written in the 14th century by Pietro di Abano, who was a very famous occultist back then, and. It laid out how you do geomancy, and it had techniques I had never seen before. It had ways of interpreting things. I was going, wow, this is cool. So I translated it 
out of Latin into English, um, published it in a little magazine that I ran in those days, and then later on, this is before websites, and then later on it became part of my book, my first book on GMS, the Earth Divination, Earth Magic. But because these techniques had been lost for so many years, people were going, wow, this is cool, the same way I did. And that kind of that kind of sparked a revival in GMS. So you get a certain number of people writing about it these mm -hmm. days. Yeah, but, it, it's interesting. It's yeah. it, it's also so much like you mentioned, like the use of computers. It, it, it's a mm -hmm. very binary system. Oh, yeah. too. It's based on binary numbers. Um, there, there's actually a number of divination systems like that that use those binary. You know, it's it's the kind of your coin flip is your mm -hmm. simplest divin your binary divination heads or tails. And in in the Yijing. The Chinese mm -hmm. Book of Changes. Of course, that's the classic one. It's it's basically six-digit binary numbers. Yeah, GMS uses the four-digit numbers, and um, a lot of other African divination systems do. I'm pretty sure GMS came from Africa originally. Hmm. One of the things about like these type of systems of divination, the <laughs> question you always have to ask is, if this system works, then that means there's really nothing that's random or free will. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, don't. No, random is one thing. Free will is quite another. People get caught in that one all the uh -huh. time. Um, so we all know that some things are open to our, our choices and some things aren't. Um, you and me and everybody listening to this are going to die sooner or later. We don't have a choice. <laughs> it's going to happen. Okay. So in that case, if you want to use your free will to live forever, I am, I'm sorry to say I have bad news for you. <laughs> but there are a lot of things you equally, you know, if you want to swim to the moon, I don't, I don't encourage you to try. There's a lot of things that are fixed, but there are other things where we have wiggle room. And a lot of what you do with divination is not try to find out what's fixed. You try to find out where's the wiggle room. Mm -hmm. What's what's the option? What can you do here? It will this is this possibility open to you? And so now it does mean that there isn't anything there isn't much random going on if there's anything random at all. Um, Carl Jung, the psychologist, to say that you say nothing is actually random. There are these patterns of what he called synchronicity. That uh, all these things that we think of as chance are actually governed by this um, this a causal patterning force. That structures everything that makes everything meaningful so you know whether he, whether he's right or not i will leave to the um you know to the, to the union psychologists but it seems to work that way hmm. um is it more of a mapping of patterns um yeah basically but you to anytime you're going to do a divination this is true of every any, any kind of divination, whether we're talking geomancy, whether we're talking tarot cards, whatever, um, what you're doing is taking the, the, the set of patterns available at that moment and saying, okay, what does this moment look like? Where are the possibilities? Where are the closed doors? Um, where are the dangers? Where are the, where, where are the positive things in this moment at this situation? If you do a lot of divination, you'll find that you do a reading on one day and it tells you one thing. And two weeks later, you do a reading on the same thing and it's shifted because mm -hmm. different people have made choices. The possibilities are different. So, yeah, thinking of it as a way to, to gauge patterns is a good way to go about that. Have you ever done a divination and you look at it like, okay, this can't be right. I'm going to do it again. And then you do it again and it comes up the same. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a couple of times. It, I have had situations where I, yeah, I got a divination. I was going, come on, shuffled the cards, whatever card deck I was using, and I dealt out the same four cards.
after thoroughly shuffling it too. Mm-hmm. So I was just going, whoa, okay. But more more commonly, what happens? They'll do a divination. They'll say something, and then I'll say if like the next day or something, I'll try and again and say, well, what about this? And they'll give me different cards, but they add up to the same pattern. Right. They, they, yeah. So you know, it's definitely saying something. There's meaning come being communicating there, communicated there. So yeah. So how does that happen? Like. It, it just drives me crazy because like, I've been reading tarot cards too since I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, uh, I, like you I know, I was 12, you know, like uh-huh, I was yeah. doing it and I didn't even know what I was doing, you know, it was just, mm-hmm. to me, it was like a game. But you were, but you were getting good readings, I bet. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was the, the weird thing about it. Oh, yeah. The, the thing is, teenagers, when you're going through puberty, the, the energy channels are open. In your in your subtle body, you can the clairvoyance can cut in. It's a lot easier to if you start, then you're going to get better results almost right away. I had the same experience. I didn't quite start that early, but as soon as I started reading tarot, I was going, "Wow, this is scary." <laughs> <laughs> but that's just the the thing you have to you you have to start and say, "Okay, clearly the universe isn't random. Clearly these things work, therefore." All that bibble babble by rationalists about how now the universe is random and there's no meaning to it and um, it's all just sort of you know random ink blot patterns and they're they're wrong. It really is that simple. <laughs> they're wrong. There's meaning in the universe and doing something seemingly random like shuffling a deck of cards or casting a geomancy reading or what have you um, is actually getting you meaningful patterns. So that's how you know there is there's meaning and purpose in the cosmos, that, that it's not just all random, that that the universe is basically talking to us all the time. We just have to learn how to listen. Why? Why Why? does why the universe even exist, you think? And, you know, I, mean, I don't know. It, it's I, such I don't know. a strange I didn't, thing. I didn't make it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't mean well, that. The, the, the thing is, prophets and wise people and priests and priestesses and philosophers have been saying this for how many thousands of years? You know, the universe is meaningful. It communicates with us. We can use terms like God if you want to. Um, but the universe is not just a lump of matter sitting there floating through dead space. Mm-hmm. They've been saying this all along. And, the, you know, if, if sooner or later, after you get that clue by four over the head enough times, you go, oh, so that's what they're saying, and they're right. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. one of the other books that I've been reading of yours is the, the <laughs> occult book. And Ah, that was a fun project. And it's an incredible book, honestly. Well, thank you. Because... One, you, you really cover philosophy really, really mm-hmm. in a way that that even I can understand it. You know, <laughs> which means it's- well, it was it was it was designed to make to kind of go through the history of of occultism and make it accessible, make it the kind of thing that anybody could just open up and read and go, "Well, this makes sense," because it does. The problem is that uh, the last the last couple of centuries, really, um, occultism has been a subculture. And if you've ever run with any other any other kind of specialized subcultures, let's you know take Star Trek fans mm-hmm. for an example. I can say Trekkies if I want to get them really mad at me, but they've got their jargon, they've got their terminology, they've got all of these trying to understand what they're saying. If you like you you haven't watched Star Trek, right? And you get you go to you go to a, you go to a Star Trek fan get together, and you're going, why are they taught? Are these people talking Martian? Well, <laughs> excuse me, it's Klingon. Of course, it's Klingon, uh, but. 
But the thing is, occultism is kind of the same way. It's been a subculture for a long time now. And so you get a bunch of occultists together, and they're talking in their own jargon. And if you haven't learned the jargon, how are you going to figure out what they're saying? So I, I, I was basically talking to the publisher of that book, Sterling, which they – I've had some very good experiences with them, but they, they really want to do things that reach out to the general public. And so they're saying, okay, you know, do a book on occultism, go through it in kind of lay out the history in a hundred, a hundred vignettes. And we'll do the, we'll do the pictures. Of course, they did a glorious job getting all the graphics on. Yeah, they're great. It's nice. But yeah, so we really work, we both, I worked with my editor on that just to make sure it was, it, it would make sense to people who didn't have a lot of previous exposure to occultism. And it's, it's, it's been doing pretty well. So I think it's, it might have succeeded. I, I, it definitely did. It is an excellent book. You know, well, thank you. I, I, like, I'm a little bit younger than you, but my, some of my first early exposure to, to the occult, and mm-hmm. well, it's actually a book that you, looks like you've uh, done some commentary on quite a bit of, which was the uh, Israel Regardi's uh, Go- Complete Golden Dawn Journal. And that was, oh yeah, the Complete Golden, the gold, that was your first exposure? Well, oh I, man, I, I didn't Talk have, about, I didn't have Talk a lot. about being, being <laughs> thrown into the deep end. Well, wow, cool. Well, I couldn't understand it though. That was the thing. I'm looking uh-huh. at this and I'm like, like, what is this? <laughs> like I had no idea what I was. Oh yeah, under, trying to I, trying to understand at that time. Like I mean, I guess I was like oh, twenty yeah. years old, maybe or something like that. Yeah, and there, there and there you were. Suddenly, it's it's the equivalent of suddenly being handed a textbook in astrophysics, and here it's talking about you know gravitational wells and and you know um, stellar sequences <laughs> and this kind of stuff, and you're going. What the ring-tailed rambling? What's it? Is this talking about? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's now the advantage that I had is that back um, back in the, in the 1970s when I got into this, there was a big rush of books on occult topics for the mass market. This was this was in the it, what what they call what they sometimes call the paperback revolution when all of a sudden cheap mass market paperbacks were everywhere. And so you'd literally go to the grocery store and there'd be this, um, you know, this uh, standing rack. And a a lot of them were cheap, you know, cheap bodice river romances and cheap science fiction and cheap this and cheap. But there'll be some nonfiction. And you'd find occult books there for a buck. Of course, a buck was worth a lot more money these days. (laughs) But yeah. And so so back at that time when I was really getting into this, I could pick up books on magic that were written for the mass market and their editors had made good and sure, you know, no, this has to be, you know, uh, Joe Average, Jane Average, somebody who picks this up at a grocery store has to be able to understand it. And that was that was not Israel Regardi's style. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> no, he was he was great. He, he was, was awesome. I never met I never met the man, although I know people who knew him. Mm-hmm. And he, he was, by all accounts, he was great, but he was deep into it. And so he spoke, you know, he, he spoke everything, he said everything in, in you know, the, the occult equivalent of high Klingon. Mm-hmm. So, but, but so I got, I had the chance to get into it by way of these, you know, basic introductory books. And one of the things I've tried to do with some of my own books since then is make sure that they're not completely opaque. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's great because it makes it available to everybody. Yeah. You know, like for me, it was definitely a struggle because I had, you know, all I had was like Israel Regardi, Crowley, 
Dino mm-hmm. Fortune, <laughs> you know, yeah. ma- maybe the clavicle Solomon or Agrippa, yeah, you know, <laughs> great stuff. But try to make sense. Of, no, for, for Dion Fortune, if you the the way into Dion Fortune is to read her novels. Mm-hmm. If you read her novels and then go on to her nonfiction, it actually makes makes more sense because she covers a lot of stuff in her fiction. But but she does it in that sort of bite sized way. Um, but yeah, yeah, I got. Um, let's see. So basically, yeah, I mean, it, it was in the, it was in the 1980s that I really, you know, got past these sort of introductory basic books off the super, off the grocery store shelves, and got into things like Regardi and had my had my flirtation with Crowley's work and and started reading everything Dion Fortune ever wrote and so on. And, but but I had that pre- I had that preliminary training, you know, and it's hard to get harder to get these days. Yeah, there's not. I, well, at least not where I'm at now. There's no secret mm-hmm. orders around here, except, well, except, for, except for Masons. I am in, I'm in South Alabama. Okay, cool. So there's not much. No, I have. I, I have never been. I've never <laughs> been to. I've never been to North Alabama for that matter. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. Um, you know, the thing is, you might be surprised. There are. Because of course, a lot of a lot of magical orders, a lot of um, occult lodges and things like that, they're very secret for good reason. Because a lot of people, especially in the more conservative parts of the country, a lot of people think, "Oh boy, they're devil worshippers. They're going to like eat our children for dinner or something like that." <laughs> and so people tend to stay very, very low, very low profile if they're into this kind of thing. So you know. You, for all for all you know, in the in in the nearest big city or medium sized city or the nearest equivalent to a big city you got in southern Alabama, mm-hmm. um, you know there might be a, a dozen people meeting quietly in a disused odd fellows lodge or something like that, practicing strange rites. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know they have a lot of voodoo here. Voodoo is pretty. Cool oh, I bet. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I used to live in New Jersey, and there was a mm-hmm. Golden Dawn Lodge lodge in in, mm-hmm. in New York City. Oh yeah, and um, and I used to actually go to a boat of builders of the Additum at the, oh, yeah, yeah. At the Masonic Lodge, up, yeah. lodge mm-hmm. in uh, Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So so back then, you know, I had access to those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I don't I don't know what's going on in that end of the scene these days. Um, I have mostly been just uh, kind of off on my own trip, but I know there I know there are lodges out there. Hmm. So so what? Um, made you go into the direction of uh, druidry. Okay, well, it's a little bit of a complex story, but it, I'll make it colorful. I, I originally got into Golden Dawn magic because that's what I could find. Mm-hmm. I mean, other than books on books on Wicca, Wicca just never really interested me. And so, what I could find, what what you could find in the 1970s was a little bit of Wicca and a lot of Golden Dawn. So that's what I did for almost 20 years. I really focused on the Golden Dawn, and most of my earlier books are, are based on that. But I knew a guy um, who was part of a magical lodge in Seattle that I also belonged to. And he was involved in one of the Druid organizations, the Order of Bards, Ovids, and Druids, which was uh, was fairly uh, – they got started again in 87, I think. They had gone through a hiatus and so on. But they, by, by the 90s, they were starting to get, to get a lot of people um, in various parts of the country. And so this guy I knew was involved in a Seattle group. Uh, of Obot, the Order of Bards of Hits and Druids. And we got to talking. 
And I said, well, this, this seems kind of interesting. And so long story short, I ended up um, taking their correspondence course. They actually, they have an old fashioned, well, like, like builders of the, of mm-hmm. the Adatum, you know, they have, it's the same, it's a three year course. And I took it and I completed it. And I thought it was really cool because it combined on the one hand, the various kind of occult spirituality stuff with a lot of focus on nature. And that's been a thing for me for a long time. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who feels a lot closer to the divine when I'm out in the woods than when I'm inside in a church. I do too. I yeah, do too. a lot of people. A lot of people are that way. Yeah. And and Druid Druid really speaks to that. And so, I, but I, but I did this. I, so I did the course, and I and I studied this, and I was involved in very in doing Druid rituals and things like that. It was all kind of interesting. And I finished that and was going, wow, that was kind of cool. I, I'm, I was and am very much into learn, continuing to learn. You know, when you, when, you st- when you stop learning, you start turning into wood from the head down. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so I was saying, I wonder if there are any other, any other old-fashioned druid orders out there. And I, I found a reference to one in an old book, tried to get in contact with a long series of, of accidents. I finally got in, got in touch with the Ancient Order of Druids in America. Okay. There were eleven people. There were eleven members left. Um, I the there wasn't one of them who was below retirement age. It was just this tiny little group of, of elderly people who had this tradition that I mean the order had been founded in 1912. It was chartered by an English order that went back. Blah blah blah. You know, it it, it went back quite a ways ultimately. And so I you know being um, young and enthusiastic and clueless, I'm going, wow, this sounds really neat. Um, could could I like learn learn your teachings in this kind of stuff? I, I you know, is, are you accepting new members then? And so these conversations started over the phone mostly, and I was talking to these these folks. And so we started with that, and I went on to say, well, I was saying, wow, this is cool. This is so cool. Have you considered blowing the dust off this stuff and putting it back into circulation? I'm sure people would be interested. And they called, they talked among themselves, and I was brought into the membership, and I was brought into the Grand Grove, the national organizing body such as it was. And a few months later, I was Grand Archdruid of the Ancient Order of Druids in America. You're basically here, kid. You think this is neat. Your job is to save it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I was going, oh, crap, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> and so I called up Philip Cargom is the head of the Order of Bards, Soviets, and Druids. I don't know. I'd met him. I, I'm once in Seattle, and then I've been over to, to England, actually stayed in his house. And so I called him going, Philip, Philip, this, oh, this has happened. Oh, my God, what should I do? And he, and of course, Philip is totally unflappable. And what he went to his note on the thing you, the thing you must do beyond anything else is have fun. <laughs> that was his druidical <laughs> advice to me. It was good advice. But so I kind of, I kind of, you know, put on my big boy pants and um, <clears throat> became Grand Archdruid. And um, that, so I spent, I was, I, I spent twelve years in that role before passing it on to someone else. And that's why I did Druidry pretty much 24-7 for those 12 years because, you know, it was a matter of throwing enough energy into this organization to get it back on its feet, to get the, the training program going again, to get, the, to get it its first website. It had never had a website. And, you know, all these things, and that was, you know, that was suddenly my job. So that's why everyone knows of me as a druid because I was very heavily. I'm I'm still I'm still you know an active member of AODA. Fortunately, I'm not the big boss anymore. 
Uh-huh. I'm an archdruid emeritus, which means I get to sit, I get to sit on my rump and on the sidelines and say, "Yeah, it looks pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> Are there a lot more members now? Oh yeah, no. We we um, AOD these days has well over a thousand members. Oh, excellent! So you took it from twelve people to over a thousand. You got it. Yeah. No, we. I I I did well. I learned a lot about how to do publicity. I wrote some books. Of course, I got the website going. We got the training program up and running. I had run-ins with, um, well, it, it was it was complicated because old-fashioned druid orders like that did not have a particularly good reputation. You had a lot of these avant-garde Wicca types and so on who were going, you're fake druids and this kind of stuff. So we had some, we had some run-ins. Mm. But it all worked out. And yeah, so so no AOD is th- AOD is thriving these days. It's it's like the third largest druid order in the world these days. Um, and a thousand doesn't sound like much, but druid druids do not form big organizations. They get to a certain point and then they divide, and uh-huh. you know people go off and do something else. It's a, you know the kind of amoeba politics. You, <laughs> you get to a certain point and mutate into two different groups, and then they mutate, and that's fine. <laughs> it adds it adds to the entertainment value. So with Druidism, what is Merlin's connection? Like the only thing I know about okay. Druids is I once read a book. I think it was the Twenty One Lessons of Merlin. Oh, oh, not a very good book. <laughs> not a good, not a good book at all. One of the problems that we faced when we were doing, um, you know, early on especially, is that everyone was bringing up Dougie Monroe's book. The Twenty-One Lessons of Merlin, and saying, "Well, is it true that the Druids all have to be men?" And we're going, "No." <laughs> there have been female druids since the beginning. Um, here are some references in Greek and Roman literature. Here are some references to female druids in the Irish, you know, Irish sagas and so on. Um, Mr. Monroe had his head up his butt, <laughs> and and so on and so forth. Now, Merlin, this is a complicated question because what we've got in terms of Merlin, we've got this legend. Well, no, let's start first of all. We have this Hollywood Disney-fied image of Merlin the Enchanter with the tall pointy hat with the moons and stars on it. Um, you know, cue the theme music to The Sword in the Stone. Um, and, and endless, endless fantasy rehashes in cheap fantasy fiction ever since. Shove all that to the dumpster, okay? We go back to the Middle Ages, we have legends about Merlin, which are much stranger. <laughs> and you have this this curious person who was apparently the offspring of a woman and a spirit who had um, really strange powers and, and uh, quite a sense of humor, although not necessarily a gentle one, and who played this important role, um, according to some stories, in, in terms of King Arthur, in terms of other stories, at different port points in, in you know the early Dark Ages and so on. And if you go back behind those far enough, you realize that you're dealing with you're dealing with what what often happened when Christianity spread across Europe, which is that figures who used to be gods got turned into heroes of stories and so on. Mm-hmm. And so behind behind the image of Merlin. Behind the behind the Hollywood, behind the medieval, behind the dark, the scraps of the dark age, image we have the image of an ancient Celtic god, a god of magic. Not a lot is known about him. We know we don't know a lot about a lot of Celtic gods. But so back when the Druids were the priests and priestesses of the ancient Celts, yeah, um, they knew all about Merlin. They they prayed to him as a god. They saw him as as you know they god of magic, 
and and also the protective deity of 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 the island of Britain. Um, the, the the name Merlin, if you take it, you, you know how names shift over time mm-hmm. and things. You know, a name sound the name looks like just a lump nowadays, but you take it back a thousand years and all of a sudden it means something. <laughs> and so, um, Merlin, the name Merlin, Merlin in Welsh, Muridunos, um, he of the sea fortress, he of the fortress surrounded by the ocean. He was the guardian spirit of the island of Britain back in the day. Okay. And that's why he was responsible for bringing Arthur to the kingship, why he was responsible for these various other things that happened that come down to us in these legendary forms. They used to be myths. They used to be scriptures, holy stories that were passed on you know, by priests and priestesses. And, and this is what we got. Yeah, you know, because I always wondered like about like that, because here you have Merlin, who's clearly pagan, and King Arthur, mm-hmm. who's Christian. Like, why are these guys working together? You know. Mm-hmm. Well, now rem- remember that. Remember that back in um, we're talking like the year five hundred. Okay, and it's it, Christianity was a very different kettle of fish in those days. It was not very solidly established, especially in Britain. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just one religion among many. And how Christian was King Arthur? We don't really know. You know, we have, again, these legends from the Middle Ages where he is this medieval king and his knights are riding around in full plate armor. But again, if you go back toward the Dark Age, you get an idea that a lot of this is just sort of overlay that's been painted on him by by people who are telling good stories. Hmm. We don't know whether he was Christian or not. Interesting. So, you know, he might he might have been as pagan as the day is long. Hmm. And, And by the way, if you're thinking of Marion Zimmer Bradley's The Mists of Avalon. If that you know, if you're thinking of his his role as a Christian and that, oh God, <laughs> I once I once I once did a writing workshop with Marion Zimmer Bradley. She's you know, there's been a lot of talk about some of the other things she was doing in her life, and we don't have to get into that. She was a, she was a very good writer, and she and she was a pretty good teacher too. But she, one of the things that she explained is that one of the most important things if you want to make money as a writer is market research. And she talked about how she got all of her ideas for the Mists of Avalon. What she did is that she went to every single Wiccan event in Northern California for a year. And, you know, around the campfires, after th- and uh, at lunch, this kind of stuff, just asked everyone, well, what, what, do you think was, what do you think the Arthurian legends were about? What do you think were actually going on? And took notes. Mm-hmm. And so what you're getting in the Mists of Avalon is the absolute generic Northern California neo-pagan party line. It has nothing to do with what was actually going on in the year 500. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> now, it sold like hotcakes. It paid her bills. Uh-huh. I, you know, you got to have a certain amount of respect for that, and I, 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 I will not claim that I don't pay attention to the market when I'm writing things. But I also don't ask every neo-pagan in Northern California what they think. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. So, so with you in your own work, how do you um, make? I mean, Golden Dawn is sort of from a from the Abrahamic type of mm-hmm. religion, and Druidry is from paganism, and mm-hmm. you're sort of combining the two. So, how do you mm-hmm. resolve some of those conflicts? Okay, well, now to begin with, I, I should I should mention um, I was not raised Christian. I wasn't raised anything. Um, my family wasn't wasn't atheist or agnostic. They were just apathetic. Um, I was never baptized. 
So I have literally no connection to to that whole, to the Abrahamic thing. And so when I got involved in the Golden Dawn, it was very much a matter of, okay, well, this is the magical training that is available to me. I will work with it as given because this is what I've got. Hmm. But it was never it was it was never a home base. It was very much a matter of okay, I'm going to I'm going to work with this material because this is what there is. And so one of the things that I really enjoyed about Druidry is that it allowed it it was the it was a spirituality of nature that really worked for me. It didn't have the Abrahamic elements. And so later on, um, as I started working on projects like the Celtic Golden Dawn and so on. Um, one of the things I did was say, okay, there are all of these cool magical techniques that the Golden Dawn has, and then there's all this Abrahamic symbolism, and the two are not necessarily connected. You can take the Abrahamic stuff and hand it back to the to you know the the Jews and Christians and Muslims and say thank you for the the lend, but we don't need it anymore. And then you can take all those same techniques and plug in a Celtic pagan vision of things with lots of gods and goddesses, with a nature-oriented spirituality and all this kind of stuff. And it works. It works really well. I in the the Celtic Golden Nun, which was again the the project that where I really I really field tested that, um, I started working on that in two thousand eight and found that the rich and basically did the rituals myself just obsessively to make sure they all worked. And I found it was actually as strong or in some places stronger than the Hermetic Golden Dawn. And so I just I, I kept going, and then I am publishing the book in in 2013. And there's there's a lot of people working with it these days, and I've got I've got a couple of other books um, out at this point that are in reference to it, and there will be more, just giving people more material to run with. That's pretty cool. I mean, I guess with mm-hmm. even with the Golden Dawn too, you know, because even mm-hmm. they incorporated a lot of the Egyptian stuff yeah. into it, and which is also very similar. Yeah, that was one of the things that I found very comfortable about it, um, because I, I, although I'm not, I'm not a kinetic, I'm not a worshiper of the Egyptian gods, I get along well with those images and energies. I think, you know, I think they're really cool. <laughs> and so I had no problem working with that. And there's another thing about the Abrahamic stuff that I have noticed consistently, and that is that the Christian god is not as intolerant as some of his followers. <laughs> Seriously, the Christian God is a lot more tolerant, a lot more welcoming than some of his followers like to insist. And so I, te- I tend to think he, he's probably the authority in this situation. Mm-hmm. But um, I had, so I had no problem you know, invoking, invoking um, Judeo-Christian names of God and things like that. And just you do it respectfully, and you do it knowing that you are you know you're like a straight you're a, you're like a foreigner visiting in a strange country you're polite and you make sure not to step on too many toes right right yeah, i mean it is possible that the uh, editors of the bible may have had some political motivation just possible <laughs> i mean the bible the bible has been i mean the bible was it was massively rewritten at several different points in its history and it's and we know I mean, there's references in the Bible itself. I think it's in, isn't it in the, the book of Judges or in Chronicles? I think the reference is the book of Jasher. Go look for the book of Jasher in your Bible sometime. It's not there. <laughs> <laughs> so there are books that literally got dropped. Yeah. And, you know, there's uh, things like the Gospel of Thomas and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, it's fine. Um, I don't rec- one of the One of the places where I occasionally have these, these interesting conversations with Christians that I know, 
is when they insist that the Bible is absolutely literally true and you have to believe every word in it. And I ask them, okay, where does it say that in the Bible? Mm -hmm. And they stop. And they go, get, 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 because it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the Bible is infallible, that it's inerrant, that it's absolutely true, that it's literal, blah, blah. Come on. Well, yeah, <laughs> if you're going to insist your faith is based on the Bible, then base it on the Bible, not on what you want the Bible to be. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, then I say just go ahead and, and, and try to follow Leviticus for a couple of days. You'll be you'll be washing your robes quite often. <laughs> you will indeed. Um, not only that, you better check you better check the fiber content of your shirts. Holly <laughs> cotton, it's unclean. Stone him. <laughs> now, I admit, I admit that I don't mind not eating bats. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm not great. I'm not greatly into eating bats, and so I can definitely keep that commandment very easily. But some of the others are a bit challenging. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did try for a while to eat non-hoofed animals. Mm -hmm. like, like I only ate like chicken and fish mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I, was actually, I was able to do that for quite a while. I was able to do that mm -hmm. longer than I could be a vegetarian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I am one of those people who does not really digest plant protein well. And so when I, in my in my late teens and early 20s, I did the macrobiotic diet for a while. And that's... That's one of those. That's one of the very vegan diets, and so on. And I got really sick, mm. and got better as soon as I realized what my body was screaming at me for, and went out and started have a nice bacon cheeseburger. So that was my experience with a hardcore vegetarian diet. <laughs> um, one of the other things that you have written about, and I, and I just discovered this like right before the show, mm -hmm. is Atlantis. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, um, the the book that the book that I had on Atlantis is out of print at this point. Um, I will be writing. I will be massively revising it and writing because I think I made some serious mistakes in that first book. Mm -hmm. um, there were things that I did not include, and there were things that I things that I should have included, um, especially some of the the evidence from some of those curious maps. Mm -hmm. Like you know, the, there's there there as the, there are all these maps from the Renaissance that include things that nobody knew about in the Renaissance, like Antarctica, right, <laughs> <laughs> and things like that. So very you know, and the, there are some other details that just make it very clear that my because what I was arguing in, in that book was a kind of a kind of lowest common denominator Atlantis, the idea that, okay, there was an ancient Atlantic civilization there were before the, the last ice age ended. And that's why it went under. But I was assuming that it was not particularly technologically advanced. The maps and some other things that we find in, um, in looking for the anomalies make it very clear that somebody had some fairly sophisticated technology back then. And so that that's going to require me to look over, to revisit the whole picture and also get into the, the latest research in what the world was like during the at the peak of the last ice age when the sea when sea level was 300 feet lower and a lot of land that's now underwater was mm -hmm. you know people lived there um they had just discovered the, the what the, what they call doggerland which was in the middle what's now the middle of the north sea and in those days was a big island yeah um when i wrote that they had just discovered doggerland at this point there's been a lot of research done on it mm-hmm 
And so there's just that it's it's a fast changing field. There's a lot of interesting stuff being discovered. And um, so, yeah, I'll be writing. I'll be writing on that again down the road. Oh, I can't wait. I'm, I'm completely obsessed with the Lances. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Big time. Because one of the things like I, I think that happened with the Lances, I, I believe it existed. I believe that it was mm-hmm. a probably some kind of technological society, at least to um, be able to navigate through ships and possibly using crystals for energy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. They they clearly had some energy source. And of course, one of the things we have to remember when we look at our, at the way we've drawn down oil and coal and things like that, if we, if when our civilization goes down, I think it's when rather than if, you know, say 20,000 years from now, another civilization rises up. They're not going to have the oil and the coal and things. It's not there anymore. We burnt it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so in the same way, there may have been a different energy resource in Atlantean times. We don't know about it because they used it. That makes sense. That makes a lot They used of it sense. up. Yeah. And so if it was some crystalline substance, that would explain a lot about the legends. Or something we haven't discovered yet. Exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. Because I've heard about people kind of discovering ways to even just pull energy out of soil. Mm-hmm. So just like, mm-hmm. like maybe that's like same thing that they're using, but like smaller dust particle amounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I, un, until and unless we get more data to go on, how can we know? And and I think I think you've, you're making a very important point here, which is that a lot of people nowadays tend to think of our kinds of technologies the only technology there is. As though, you know, there's some kind of, it's, it's inevitable that any technological civilization would look like, would have a technology that looks like ours. And that's not true. That's not true at all. And so in Atlantis and in, in previous civilizations, because the occult, the occult tradition has it, that we are the fifth advanced civilization on this planet. That there was ours. Before that, there was the whole Atlantean cycle. Before that, there was a Lemurian cycle. Mm-hmm. Before that, the Hyperborean and the Polarian back, um, you know, about a, about a, a million, million and a half years ago. So you have each of these cycles probably developing a completely different technology, possibly even so different that we might not even recognize that it is a technology. I don't know if you've read John Michel's book, The View Over Atlantis. No, I haven't. Oh, you would find that one interesting. Um, he's he was the he was the guy who really got into who well who who introduced reintroduced the concept of ley lines, um, and he was very much into sacred geometry, into um, earth energies, things like that. Mm-hmm. And he argued that basically there are all these things scattered across various parts of the earth, the straight the the you know straight alignments, right. the standing stones, and he said these are actually part of an advanced technology, but we don't recognize it as such. That's like my friend Jared, who wrote the. He has the. Um, is wasn't aliens with words? It's us. He has like this whole theory about the like the, the spheres, the round rock spheres, that mm-hmm. they were some type of technology used to help distribute the energy hmm. through the soil. I, it, I could see it. I could see it. Um, it's not aliens. It's worse. It's us. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, is he dealing with the UFO phenomenon at all, or is he just yeah, dealing he with like ancient astronauts? Okay, cool. I, I will. I will take a look at that. I have a. I have a book on that subject also, which um, has irritated a lot of people. Really? Oh yeah. Why? Um, have you no? Have you noticed that pe- people, most people on the whole UFO thing, they they fall into these two camps these days: either UFOs are alien spaceships, or 
they don't exist at all. Mm-hmm. And come on, all the UFO means is unidentified flying object. It's something in the air. We can't identify it. There can be a lot of reasons for things to be in the air that we can't identify. They don't have anything to do with aliens from Zeta Reticuli. And so I went into that and I started, I explored, because my argument is that there is no one UFO thing. There are actually a bunch of different things that have been lumped together in the popular imagination to create this thing we call the UFO. And one of the things is that the U.S. Air Force has been using the UFO phenomenon as as protective camouflage for their tests of things since 1947. Yes. I, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you, you probably remember when all of a sudden UFOs were black triangles. Mm-hmm. Black triangles. Gosh. And what were we testing right at that time that was a black triangle? <laughs> can you say stealth plane? Nope. I think you can. <laughs> Exactly. And that that was one of the things that really gave it away. And also when when the um the CIA did a um released some old documentation and it turned out the Project Blue Book, mm-hmm. the Air Force's the uh, debunking organization, they were making calls to the CIA every time one of our spy planes, a U two and a SR seventy one went up. They were making calls to the CIA and the CIA was saying, Yeah, that's one of ours and Project Blue Book was saying, Okay, say it was Venus. Mm-hmm. They were running cover for the CIA. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, so, so so that that also that fed into my theory. Of that, but I want to look at your friend's book one of these days. That sounds yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think for me with the UFO thing, I, I had to go with like it is a combination probably of every theory out there. <laughs> it you would know? not surprise me. Like, like, like I'm guessing if it's possible, if if I can think of it. Is possible mm-hmm. because I'm not yeah. that smart. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so sure of that. But you're 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 smart enough not to get sucked into the claim that it has to be aliens from Zeta Reticuli or it doesn't mm-hmm. exist at all. <laughs> and yeah, I, the thing is, I when, when I was working on my book, The UFO Chronicles. I went back and read a lot of early books on the UFO thing, which most people don't even look at these days. And one of the things about the, the early UFO literature is that it was much more open to different possibilities. There were people saying, what if they're life forms? Mm-hmm. What if they are living things that live in the upper atmosphere? I think that's a definite possibility for some it's, of it. It's worth looking. It's worth looking into, you know. And just there were all kinds of fascinating things that in those days that it's gotten it's gotten very flat and two dimensional, and the you know where it's just the the no, it must be aliens, and then you know the the de- the debunkers going, you know, if we don't know about it, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Plus, I don't know. Um... You have to kind of redefine, like, what is an alien anyways? Alien mean something from another planet? Could it mean um, something that we haven't discovered yet? Could it Mm -hmm. mean multidimensional dimensional being? Mm, Could it it be, um, you know, like like, like what Neil Colt would be, like an egregore, like a a conscious uh, form? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There's so many different aspects to it. Yeah, um, Ivan Sanderson. There, there's a there's a grand old investigator of, of anomalies nobody thinks about these days. <laughs> Ivan Sanderson. He argued that they were an intelligent species that lives in the ocean. Why not? Because he found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people seeing UFOs coming out of the water, coming out of the sea, and so he was going. Okay, 
okay. What if we are sharing the planet with some other intelligent beings? You know, so you've got that possibility. Um, you've got, of course, John Keel. Back in the day, my favorite, favorite book on UFOs was was his book, The Mothman Prophecies. Mm-hmm. If, if you have not read that, do yourself a fail good. Yeah, no, that is that is the most hallucinatory book I think I've ever read. Um, it's great. And his, his argument that we're dealing not with extraterrestrials, but ultra-terrestrials, things coming from... From, from another dimension of being, come for what he calls the super spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, again, and and he, he points out that a lot of why he says this is that what they're doing does not make sense. It's weird, not any, these are an advanced, you know, this is a far more advanced civilization than ours, but in a, what the ring-tailed rambling, <clears throat> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just bizarre. And so, yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So, so we don't know, and that's and that's a good place to be, just to accept that we don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or like you know, like I don't know the answer, obviously, but I, I'm I'm not going to discount any possibility. I'm also not going to yeah. discount any person's experience. And that's an important thing. Yeah. You know, if you saw something, you saw something. What caused you to see something is another matter, but we don't have to get into that yet. Let's let's accept the fact that you saw something. Right. Like, like for yeah. example, you as, as work with working with magic, ha- have mm-hmm. you ever physically manifested an entity? Um, no. No. No, I don't do. Um, actually, bringing bringing something through into physical manifestation, you have to have certain. It's the same talent that used to be used by materializing mediums. You have to be able to give off ectoplasm from your body. And um, there are many ways that um, you can work with spiritual beings without, you know, dragging them all the way into material manifestation. That's what I tend to do. Mm-hmm. I don't have I don't have the kind of for the same reason I'm also really poor at, at astral projection out of body experience I'm, I'm not very good at that at all. Mm-hmm. You have to have a certain kind of a certain kind of energy body to do that. and I don't. But have I done have I um, done workings and had results from them? Sometimes dramatic results. You bet. That's why I'm still doing this stuff. Cool. How, how about it sc- works in? How about scrying? Oh, scry- yeah. Yeah, scry- the thing is, you can't. If you do Golden Dawn training, you're going to be scrying until your eyes cross. <laughs> they do a lot of it, <laughs> and that's a very important. That that's that actually feeds into it. It's much easier to do scrying in the spirit vision, um, whether you know whether you're using a crystal or something, whether you're simply using using the your imagine your quote imagination unquote. But to tap into the flow of imagery and so on, it's much easier to contact spiritual beings that way than, than to break out the uh, you know, the the deadening of Crete and the other heavy incenses and, mm-hmm. and to try to try to actually make something manifest. Have you ever been doing a ritual and gotten like a, like you know like that electric staticky feeling? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that that typically happens when you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, the air gets that kind of charge, and then if you're doing a ritual for a purpose, if you're aiming like uh, to say to, to consecrate a talisman or something, or consecrate a, a magical working tool, you build that energy, and then at the right moment, it goes into the thing you're doing, and then everything's just flat. Hmm. Then you wrap that puppy in silk or linen, mm-hmm. 
And, you know, and so to hold the charge and get out of the way before you do your banishings so that you don't dis- dissipate the charge. But yeah, oh yeah. That's cool. So it, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and that's one of the things like, like what I've, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm more like a, like an armchair musician, but, but yeah, yeah. I, I have made a table of practice and tried to, Bring about you know some Enoki and things, and I tried a little mm-hmm. Goasha stuff here and there, and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and and the one commonality was always that that static feeling. <laughs> I, I could oh, yeah. feel that electric in the air. You could, oh, you could feel it. You could feel the energy moving. Yeah, and, and, and I was like, wow, yeah. That's, is, is it just my imagination, or is this real? Do I have no. a way to measure this? <laughs> Actually, that would be interesting. I I haven't. I've heard people talk about using like um, electromagnetic radiation detectors or electrostatic detectors or things like that to try to see, is there a physical energy here? I haven't heard yet of anyone doing it, but it'd be interesting to try. Hmm. How about, what do you think about pop culture magic? Um, you know, people that are not really following any type of system, they're just mm-hmm. kind of um, using intention and will. Mm-hmm. And you can do that. You can get some results with it. You can get much, in my experience at least, you can get much better results more reliably by actually doing the traditional training, putting in all. You know, it's like you can you can get you can pick up a certain amount of facility with, say, playing the guitar. You can learn to play the guitar. You know, sitting there on your own, plinkety plinkety plink, for a, you know an hour a week or something like that. On the other hand, if you go get lessons and practice two hours a day, I promise you, you're going to be a better guitarist. Yeah. Magic is the same way. You can do pop culture magic, and you can, you know, you can, you may be able to do the equivalent of playing a tune that you like. Um, but if you want to get lessons and and do some serious practice and know what you're doing, learn the fingerboard and and how to how to control the pick and all that kind of stuff, then you can really you know, you can really go places with it. So I, you know, I there are times I get kind of dismissive about the pop culture types, um, not least because some of them think that they can do anything mm-hmm. <laughs> and i i just i don't argue at this point i really don't argue it's just a matter of okay whatever you know go you know perform your ritual and see what happens and it, it and they can sometimes get some effects but the really dramatic sort of things not so often right yeah do you think that um things like uh I don't know, like like Reiki and like that type of mm-hmm. healing. Do you would you put that in a category as as magic too? That's that. It's it's always really difficult on those borderline cases. Reiki and heal, you know energy healing like that. There's a lot of different methods of doing it, mm-hmm. and it works. I mean, anyone who's actually had had the had one of those treatments, you can feel that it works. You can notice the you know, before and after. Is it magic? I don't know. It depends on how you define magic. But um, certainly, on the one hand, it ten- it works with the sort of the energies of the unseen, the way magic does. On the other hand, um, the same you know rationalist skeptics who says magic is nonsense also say Reiki is nonsense. So it's kind of lumped together that way. As a result of which, I know a lot of people who practice magic and do Reiki. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why not? <You're, laughs> the rationalist skeptics are going to sneer at you anyway. Want to? You know, why not get a double helping? <laughs> well, you're channeling energy. I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so, you know, I mean, I think there has to be some type of commonality there's, there. 
I'm, I'm sure there's a connection in there somewhere. Reiki specifically is not one that I've worked with, but right. um, I learned I learned another one of the things I mentioned the AODA, the the old the old bunch of druids mm-hmm. that I ended up meeting. They actually had connections to half a dozen traditions that all kind of folded in on each other. Um, Basically, what happened was that when Wicca became popular, when the kind of pop neo-paganism really took over, there were a lot of older traditions that ended up just pretty much being sidelined. And some of them have gone out of existence, and some of them are sort of surviving in little pockets here and there. And so I ended up, uh, let's see, I ended up being consecrated as a Gnostic bishop. I ended up, I received initi- initiations in one in, in a different Golden Dawn offshoot than the one, you know, a, a certain magical tradition, um, in an order of spiritual alchemy, and in an Essene tradition, which had its own system of, of energy healing. So I I had to I had to deal with all of that stuff, yeah. and I've been in the process of, of getting it into people's hands, and of course. It, AODA, the, the Druid Order, has, has really kind of picked up the ball on that one, and they're working at sort of distributing it so that down the road, eventually, these other orders can come back into existence. But, but so I've done, I've, done the, I've done energy healing using, using you know, energies through the palm mm-hmm. centers, and um, yeah, there's a, it, it's not quite the same as magic, but there's some, there's some real overlaps. Yeah, I think, too, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I think there is some record of Rosicrucians using similar techniques oh, yeah. also. Oh oh yeah. No, the Rosicrucians were deep into healing. And they, they use her they use herbs, they used um alchemy, and they also use energy healing. So yeah. Um so one of the things like like you you've also written a book on secret societies. Ah yes. Um is the world being controlled by a secret cabal from the Bavarian Illuminati? <laughs> no, uh, no. The the thing the thing about secret no. <laughs> there's a quick no. No, the the thing people don't get about secret societies is that you do the secret society thing when you don't have the power to run things. Okay, uh, let, let me start with a secret with a, a revolution that was carried out by secret societies. We know they're documented. There were two of them. They were in it up to their eyeballs. Okay, the, we're talking about the American Revolution. The Committees of Correspondence was a secret society. That was the organization that kind of planned the revolution in advance. People like George Washington were members, and then there were the Sons of Liberty. You, you know, well, mm-hmm. Paul Revere and his boys. They were also a secret society, and so they planned this whole thing. With the committees of correspondence kind of doing all the all the legwork and all the making all the arrangements, and the Sons of Liberty gathering guns and 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 ammunition, getting everything ready, and so both of those organizations then changed into something else. Um, the committees of correspondence we now call the United States Congress. The Sons of Liberty we call the United States Army. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they turned into. And that's what happens with secret societies. Um, in the case of the Russian Revolution, again, that was plotted by a secret society. Lenin ran a secret society. Then he became, you know, um, general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And his secret society turned into the Communist Party. It was very public. You do the secret societies thing when you're not strong enough to do that yet. And so that's one thing you got to remember about secret societies. The other thing about secret societies is they're not all on the same side. Mm-hmm. If back in the day, I don't know if anybody plays this anymore, but there was this great game, this great card game called Illuminatus by Steve Jackson Games, and it was based on it was kind of based loosely on the Illuminatus trilogy, 
which um, is was that that was kind of a, a kind of a 1970s thing, but it's worth reading. The idea is you have all these different secret societies that are all trying to control the world and they're all fighting each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's actually more accurate. Then, then the whole, you know, there's one big secret society and controls. Why would it bother to be secret? Right. If it actually controlled the world, why bother to be secret? Why not just, you know, run things again, like the Communist Party did in Russia, um, or the well, uh, the Nazi Party. The Nazi Party started as a secret society, and as soon as it as soon as it t- took over Germany, they stopped being secret and they actually banned all competing secret societies. They didn't want to do any, anything. They didn't want anyone else to do to them what they'd done to the to the German government. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. Um, so that's this is this is so I have my book. I have my Encyclopedia of Secret Societies. I have the book, the conspiracy book, which is kind of companion to the occult book. And I also have a book called Inside a Magical Lodge, which, for the benefit of our listeners, is how to found a secret, found and run a secret society. Will you do it? Because occultists have been organizing secret societies for a very long time, especially back in the days when being an occultist would get you burned at the stake. Secrecy has its has its advantages. And even even much more recently, when that was no longer the case, you could still have your reputation ruined, you could lose your job, you could lose your family, if word got out that you were practicing occultism. So again, let's be a little quiet about this. And so occultists got very good at how to doing this sort of small scale, low profile secret society. And I was involved in some of them, and I was also involved in I've also been involved in other not less occult organizations. And so I wrote, I wrote what is still, I think, the only book on how to found and run a secret society. That is cool. It's Very a, cool. Um, hey, I have, a, I have a, a great collection of funny hats, too. Do you really? <laughs> are, oh, yeah. Are you a Shriner? Um, no, I'm actually not a Shriner. Um, I am Freemason, mm-hmm. and I belong, I belong to the Scottish Rite and also the York Rite, meaning that I have a Knight's Templar chapeau, which looks like, like kind of a Napoleon hat, but it's fore and after rather than sideways, with big ostrich plumes on it. And I have, um, you know, the sort of um, monkey, the, the organ writer's monkey cap that, that we wear in the Scottish Rite. And I, I have a variety of other funny hats. Wow. Do you have a kilt? Um, I could, I have never actually spent the money on a kilt. Um, however, you're, you are quite correct. Greer is a Scottish name. It is a, it's one of the names of Clan McGregor, <laughs> in fact. So I, I know which, I know which, um, carton I would need to get. Wow. Yeah. It, it's kind of, they are expensive, I won't say, I won't I say it's the prettiest carton in the world, but it's, yeah, but I don't know which one. I wonder why the kilts are so expensive. I don't know. Maybe it's, it's, you know, prestige value or something. Yeah. I, yeah, but I just never never got around to that. <laughs> Do you think any of these secret societies have uh, bad intentions? Oh yeah, <laughs> um, the mafia is a secret society. Seriously, no. to be to become a made man in the in the mafia, you have to take an oath of secrecy. They go through a little initiation ritual. It's a secret society. Okay? You know, you know my, la- in- my last name is Cacciolillo. Well, there we go. <laughs> I wasn't going to make any assumptions here, but yeah, but yeah, you know, um, you, you know, the, the, the mafia is, I will not, I, I mean, the mafia has reasons for being what it is, but I would not particularly consider it to be a benevolent organization. Mm-hmm. 
and and there there are are there secret societies that there are there have been lots of criminal secret societies over the years there are a lot of political secret societies from the extreme left to the extreme right all the way through the middle um and some of those have had uh, you know fairly well certainly if you be, if you're on the left you probably think very badly of uh, secret societies on the right if you're on the right you probably have some pretty negative ideas of secret societies on the left and yeah there, there, are, there are some of them. I mean, there are there are some that are full of thoroughly nasty people. But then that's true of Boy Scout troops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. It's certainly true of, of. I mean, I think we have all encountered businesses where the boss is as is. You know, thank heavens he doesn't run the world because we'd all be in horrible <laughs> shape. I've had bosses like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luckily, like, I mean, I'm not left or right. So I don't mm-hmm. even I don't even vote I don't okay yeah you know, I don't worry I don't know it, it's it's I can say that stuff, probably that probably takes some stress understand. off yeah yeah because I want to be friends with everybody man you know what I mean okay. yeah I yeah, I, that makes I, sense. I don't want to be judging half the world thinking that they're mm-hmm. arguing against me that seems mm-hmm. counterproductive yeah yeah um ah. so how about like the uh, the elite type of secret society, things like um, the Rothschilds or Skull and Bones. Okay. Now, the Rothschilds is a family. Yeah. Again, they don't need to be secret. It's like, you know, some of these other outfits um, like the um, the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Society. I mean, the Council of for Foreign Relations, CFR, has a monthly magazine called Foreign Policy. If you want to know what they want, what they're thinking about, you can you can subscribe there's are there are there elite societies oh yeah are they influential do they are they um instruments that are used to exercise power you bet they aren't especially secret why should they be i mean now there i'm sure there are conversations that go on at cfr meetings that you and i are not going to hear about but again that's true when the um you know when uh, the microsoft board of um you know the the board of the the you know or micro the the C suite in Microsoft whoever gets together mm-hmm. and talks. Um, I don't know maybe Microsoft is a secret society. It explains something. <laughs> but what is the yeah. one with the Grove? Oh oh, you're thinking uh, Bohemian Grove? Yeah, Bohemian Grove, um, Bohemian, yeah. Bohemian Grove. Yeah, basically a summer camp for the very rich. Then why are they the weird do that, costumes and orgies? Uh, um. I've seen some pretty weird costumes, and well, I have not actually I haven't actually seen orgies, but I have them reported up and down the social spectrum. I, you know, um, when you have a bunch of men who make um, you know a hundred thousand dollars a year or more, mm-hmm. and they go to a summer camp for two weeks, um, and uh, where their to which their wives and other female relations are not permitted to go. Are there going to be good time girls in abundance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are they going to get drunk and get laid and do everything else that, that you know wealthy guys tend to do when they want to unwind? Of course they are. Are they going to have the same kind of, you know, they, they have the ceremony of the burning of care. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I went to summer camp back in the day, um, we had various silly little ceremonies too. Now, we did not have... Uh, you know, a, a fifty billion, a fifty million dollar budget. Right. 
so we weren't able to do the fireworks and the kind of things they do. But and the thing is, the, the people who are looking at the Bohemian Grove, they've actually got their eye on something because a lot it's in these sort of informal things that people are going to get together and say people who are very rich and very powerful, they're going to get together and hang out together and say, OK, um, how do we strengthen our wealth and power? How are we going to shake down the economy to make ourselves richer than we are at everyone else's expense? Because that's what rich people do. And in the same way, I'm sure when the Council on Foreign Relations has, you know, a, you know, has a meeting or a conference or even just a cocktail party, you know, you've got somebody from the Rothschilds and somebody from the Rockefellers and somebody um, from, you know, half the other really rich families. They're all just kind of hanging out in the corner going, OK, um, what should now, you know, if we did this to the Internet, <clears throat> we could rake in even more money than we are raking in now. Mm hmm. I think, um, who is it? Adam Smith, the guy who wrote The Wealth of Nations, the guy who basically invented modern capitalism, was saying that businessmen in the same trade never get together, even on a social occasion, without coming up with some scheme for screwing the public. Hmm. <laughs> it's true. And when the businessmen in question are worth billions, they have the capacity to screw the public on a very grand scale. Wow. So, you know, yeah. They do. But do they, they do they need to do do they need to put on fezes and you know make the secret password and you know go into a pyramid shaped building? Uh, in, no, <laughs> why why would they have to bother? I think all they really need is what they have, which is really expensive exactly. colleges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is, yeah, that's a very good point because places like Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and so on—that's how they filter through people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, stop this phone call. Let's see if it shuts off again. All right. No, nope. okay. <laughs> we no, seem to be good. So, so yeah, 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 like the skull and bones, but all these elite colleges, to me, seem like a caste system, almost. Because you have to go through these institutions in order to become a part of these huge money-making organizations. W would you agree with that? Did I lose you? Hello? Hello? Oh, I lost you. Hello? Yep, can you hear me? Yeah, can oh, you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my question was, like, um, with these uh, colleges, like, you know, like places like Princeton, Yale, uh -huh. um, yeah, yeah. Harvard, like, they're their own caste system almost for the rich. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, the, 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 so do you think, like, the colleges and the fraternal orders of the colleges – or, or yeah. also like qualify as a, a secret society? Well, except, I mean, how secret is Harvard? <laughs> well, it's not um, a secret, are but, they, but it's very, it's very it's got, exclusive. It's got a lot of, yeah, exactly. The, the colleges are the filtering places. The colleges basically, um, obviously the very rich go to, you know, each of them, like, um, like the Bush family was since there's, what's it, to Yale, I think it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and some pe some rich people send them to Harvard, some to Dartmouth, some you know they they've all got their got their specific colleges they send them to, and then they also you also get a lot of kids who are not of that class who are of the you know the classes immediately below that, and those are the ones who are being sorted through to see who's going to end up in the upper level sort of upper level flunky positions, you know, the directors of corporations, the um, the people who don't actually have the power themselves but who uh -huh. administer it for the very rich. And that's the thing, especially that the fraternities like Skull and Bones and some of the other ones do. The Harvard has a set of them too, and I think most of them do. And that you know that's where that's where they choose 
the people who are going to be the administrators, who are going to be the directors, who are going to be, as I said, the kind of top-level flunkies. It's not secret. Is it a center of elite power? Absolutely. Hmm. Do they wear funny fezes? Well, I don't know. Some of the some of you know some of the college fraternities apparently have some quite silly things to do. Do you think any of them are dangerous? Um, well, dangerous in what sense? Well, any sense. Okay. Well, the thing is, elite. When any time power gets concentrated in, in in the hands of an elite, your society is going to end up becoming behaving in in a more and more stupid fashion, because elites always get inbred. You know, you start off with um, people who've risen up through the ranks, who who are intelligent, who are clever, who who work hard, and then their grandchildren are spoiled rotten. They're cosseted. They've never had to work in their life. George W. Bush comes to mind, <laughs> and they're they're completely clueless. And so it's like what happened to France before the revolution. You start out with with these you know barons who are actually effective rulers, and you end up with these perfumed, primped, um, delicate, erudite figures who are just so sensitive and so you know and 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 they're running and they run the country into the ground because they're a pack of idiots. You think that was happening so, in the United States? Yeah, and so that's the thing is that's the situation we're in in the United States at this point. Um, despite a lot of yelling about, oh, you know, we're the land of opportunity, how much you, the, the single most significant figure thing to determine how much you're going to make in your life is how much your parents made. You know, yeah. we have hereditary, we have hereditary castes in this country like India. And so the problem with that is that the people with talent don't have the opportunity to rise to the positions that they could fill. And the people who are in that position got there because of who their grandparents were. And many of them, are complete wastes of oxygen. <laughs> and so you have a country that cannot do anything effectively because all of its leadership are, are, you know, inbred. And that's where we are. That's the situation we're in right now. And so is the, are these, you know, these universities and, and, you know, things like Skull and Bones dangerous? Yes, because they encourage that. Because they foster and these sort of, again, this sort of French court circa 1788 where um you know let them eat cake mm -hmm. i, I, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more you know I yeah it's very dangerous it's 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 dangerous because it means your country's going to slam face first over and over again into one stupid mistake after another cough cough afghanistan cough cough <laughs> and not learn the lessons or you know, fill in fill in a foreign policy blunder of the last twenty years. <laughs> there have been a few of them. Oh, lots. Exactly. In fact, in fact, since I've been alive, I really haven't seen the government operate effectively. Exactly, exactly, and that's that's because the people running our society right now are basically morons. What do you think about the idea of not having a government? Well, it depends. The problem with it's it's a great theory, but the problem is that if you do that, anyone who decides they're going to um, take over, there's no one to stop them. I mean, the United States could abolish its government. Okay, um, the Chinese would have would be happy to replace it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, and so it's it's. I, I I really I really think you know the, the U.S. Constitution is not is not getting a lot of people are not paying a lot of attention to it these days, unfortunately, but it's a good constitution. And one of the things that's really good about it is that the, it has this notion of 
um, restricted power. You assign certain things to the government, the government does them, and then everything else should stay with the states or with the people. We've been ignoring that for, for almost a century now. But that's the basic, that's the basic idea. It, it was, it's a good idea. It worked well. It would work well again if we could simply, um, you know, make some changes. Where do you think it got messed up? Um, what typically, it's what usually happens to, to, to a society like this one. We got in the mess of the Great Depression and then the Second World War. And in both of those, you had um, people in government who were going, oh, we can fix this. Just give us lots of extra power. And so you had the, the, um, you had the New Deal and you had all this war legislation, well, you know, most of the, all these things that, that uh, Franklin Roosevelt put in. And by the time the Second World War was over, um, even though Eisenhower could give a speech about the military-industrial complex and say, you need, we need to woe way back on this, yeah. it, everyone had gotten into the habit, we're just going to let the federal government do it, we'll let the feds do this, we'll let the feds do that, until pretty soon the feds were running everyone's lives. And that was not the way it was intended, and it doesn't work well. Hmm. Do you think it could be fixed? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it will be fixed simply because the federal government is doing such a lousy job. We're already starting to get a lot of pushback from, from, from all sides of the political spectrum. People saying, no, maybe we need to leave this in the hands of individuals. Maybe we need to leave this in the hands of communities. Maybe we need to leave it in the hands of the states. And I think as, you know, it's, it's not going to be a fast process. But I think I think it's entirely possible that things could be, especially once we get 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 out of the this idiotic notion that we are supposed to be the world's policemen, that we are supposed to run the world. No, we're not. We can't even run our own country effectively right now. Why don't we? Let's fix let's fix that first. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think <laughs> we can, Do you think we can do it without going to war with each other? Um, at this point, that's a heck of a good question. I like to think we could probably do so. But we'll see. Wow. I, I honestly, I think that the number of people who are actually caught up in the hate and the yelling, it's actually a small minority. There are not that many people. Most people in this country are perfectly willing to live and let live. But you've got people screaming in the media all the time. And you've got people who are very influential, who, who want to set ordinary Americans against each other and whip up, whip up panics and this kind of stuff. And, you know, we'll see. I, I, think, I think we can get past that. I think we can get past that and, and greet each other as individuals again and, and recognize that, you know, you live your way and I'll live my way and it's okay. Wow. I think those people that are pitting American versus American are profit, yeah. profit, profiting off of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's also a way to fleece the country because while everybody's fighting with each other, you can just rip them all off. Yeah, you know, that too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, nobody's you, looking. Yeah, exactly. And, and you, can, you can, these days, you know, you can always say, here is this dreadful, important cause. Rally around me and send me your bucks to, so I can fight those other people over there. And, of course, most of the money just ends up in someone's pocket. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, with all this going on, do you think mm-hmm. that people practicing occult mysticism 
uh, mm-hmm. surgery, you know, anything that's kind of elevating their consciousness and spirituality mm-hmm. could help mm-hmm. guide us back into the right direction? I think it's, the, it's one of the most important things that any of us can do. Um, because a lot of what's going on, if you look at it in terms of magic, if you look at it in terms of occultism, a lot of people are under a spell. They're under spells that make them, that, that may keep them stuck in miserable lives, that make them believe people who've lied to them over and over again and so on. And so if each of us work on popping ourselves out of that consciousness, work on, on expanding our own awareness, becoming conscious of ourselves, of our own lives, and, and developing our capacities for consciousness and wisdom, that's, that's crucial. That's the one thing. And then treating each other decently is the other thing that I think we can all do. Mm-hmm. And if more people do both of those, I think we can pull through this both of those require sort of the same thing which is individual effort and work got it in one yeah yeah that's and ultimately that's the thing about about magic that i tend to stress with students you know it doesn't matter how many books you read it doesn't matter how many books you buy even though you're helping to pay my rent okay do you do the work are you willing to apply the seat of your pants to the seat of the chair and do the meditations? Are, are you willing to, you know, do that ritual practice every single morning, even though there will be mornings where you just desperately want to sleep in for those 15 minutes? Are you willing to do the work? If you are, you can accomplish amazing things with your life. And, and of course, that's true with anything. We we're talking about, I was using um, playing a guitar yeah. as, a, as a metaphor. Yeah, if you want to be if you want to be a good guitarist, you're going to have that guitar in your hands to be playing for an hour a day. And if you don't do that, you're not going to become a good guitarist. It doesn't matter how how you know how much you feel or what have you. You got to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so that's true of magic. It's true of anything. And it's true. It's true of, of you know getting ourselves out of the mess we're in as a country right now. Um, are we willing to do the work? Are we willing to um, turn off the television? think for ourselves for a change, get some peace and quiet and, and look at ourselves, look at what we've become, look at what we've turned into and then treat each other a little more decently and try to try to rebuild instead of just screaming at each other. Maybe an easy way to do that would be to turn off the power grid. <laughs> yeah, but that would be kind of awkward. I mean, I don't know how well your, how, how long your freezer would keep, um, you know, would keep your meat frozen if that happened. Uh, but... It'll probably last about 18 hours. I've... <laughs> No, the, yeah, so no, no. There's, I'm sure, I'm sure there are a lot of tasty steaks in there that we do not want to waste. <laughs> so, so no, ha- I, again, in, again, individual efforts. Don't mm-hmm. turn off the power grid. Just turn off your television. Honestly, that's one one of the things. That's that's kind of one of my little trips. Okay, um, most of the people that I know who are doing amazing things in their lives don't have televisions. Because most people, even though they say, oh, I only watch miniseries or what have you, they're watching that thing four hours a day. Mm-hmm. And now imagine if you took that four hours a day and did something with them, you'd, have, you'd be doing amazing things in your life. So that's, that's my, one little, my one little sermonette on television. You can have a TV or you can have a life. Don't, ever, don't count on having both. <laughs> you just went like Frank Zappa on me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, he, yeah, no, no, Frank, Frank understood. Frank understood. And the thing is, I haven't owned a television in my adult life. Seriously, I do not have one. I have my wife and I have gotten have gotten through um what is it now almost thirty seven years of marriage. 
without owning television. And wow. I think we're happier. <laughs> I think we had a better life without having, you know, the boob tube <laughs> yammering at us night and day saying, get angry about this, get scared about that, <laughs> buy this, it's crap, but you need it. <laughs> <laughs> Does she ever like make you have to like, you know, fix a hole in a roof or something? Um, I fixed holes in roofs. That's fine. I, I don't like I don't like water dripping on me either. <laughs> don't <laughs> see that's the funny thing. Like, like me and my wife. Like in fact, that's uh, water dripping on. Like I have a Jeep that's a soft top, and it leaks like crazy, <laughs> and it leaks on only the passenger side. <laughs> oh oh oh! No fun. <laughs> no, so I, no. I just you know domestic domestic harmony. If domestic harmony requires patching the roof, I can certainly patch the roof. I'm, not a problem. Um, you, know, you know, we we manage. That's a long time to be married, though. That's very no, good. No, we we got we 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 got married. We got married um, a couple years out of college. We met we met at college, and um, you know, the usual thing: fell in love and this kind of stuff, and ended up moving in together. And after a little while, we realized we were very well suited to each other. And um, she is just as much into occultism and things like that as I am. So you know, hey, it was going. It was definitely going to go places. Oh yeah. So we got married, and um, yeah, I th- that, it certainly works for me. Hmm. I mean, I have. N- I never have to wonder who I'm going to be spending Saturday night with. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, it makes it makes dating much easier. Yeah, well, dating sucks. <laughs> That's definitely one of the perks of being married. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, one <laughs> of those things. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. My wife thinks I'm a little crazy because I do all this kind of stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, she she don't upset, understand my obsession with Atlantis and Bigfoot and hmm. UFOs and the occult. Mm-hmm. But my head is just all connected somehow, and and I think at least getting people to question, to ask mm-hmm. questions about it. Like I don't really mm-hmm. want to tell people what to think or or preach any oh, yeah. type of agenda, but I do think if people question. It creates a crack in people's minds that can maybe mm-hmm. open things up to something completely new. Mm-hmm. And I think we need that at this point. I think we need more open minds and less people who are completely certain that they know the truth about things. Yeah, because we don't know the truth. No, no. I don't think no, a, don't. I don't think a human being is capable of knowing the entire truth. I think we're limited. Well, you know, most most philosophers would agree with you right there. In fact, uh, Immanuel Kant, who was a German philosopher about 200-something years ago, worked at, spent, I forget how many big books, arguing that, in fact, we can't get at the truth. We don't have that tr- We don't have that option. Here's the kind of things we can know, but it's not the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you, you are, uh, you are um, following in the footsteps of the great philosophers. Even Pythagoras? Uh, Pythagoras just said, you know, things are numbers. Yeah, we can know numbers, but um, yeah. But where, no, that, the, that, but where did numbers that, lead that to? Is, <laughs> we, oh, we can say that that's, that leads in strange directions. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, when does this Atlantis book come out? Um, well, again, it was I had I when was when did it come out? Um, it was out originally out in, I think... Was it 2006? Yes, yeah, something around there. And then 
Um, it went out of print a couple of years ago. And so I have, it's, I have a stack of things that most of them I've, I've finished. The ones that they, they went out of print with one publisher, got them in print with another. And, um, they, let's see, it's going to be, it's going to be a little while before I get to that one. Cause I'm going to have to do a lot of research to pick up on everything that's been going on in that field. Cause the, the field of Atlantis studies has actually been hugely busy the last 10 years. Oh yeah. yeah. There's just enormous amount of stuff being found out and so on. And so, um, it's going to take some, it's going to take some serious research. So and there's also like, I think like my theory on Atlantis is, mm-hmm. That it was probably, if not set in the Gulf of Mexico, I think it sat somewhere off of between North and South America, off mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. you know where the Bahamas and the islands are. Yeah, oh man, you are you are right on you are right on my theory. So go on. And <laughs> I, and, I, and I think when it sunk, they 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 scattered. Some went to Egypt, some mm-hmm. went to Africa, and some were mm-hmm. here in North America. And mm-hmm. they, they built structures, and I think like, mm-hmm. like, like things like the Eye of Africa, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Poverty Point in Louisiana, all the mm-hmm. way to some of the um, stone circular structures, mm-hmm. are kind mm-hmm. of built to almost remind us, mm-hmm. kind of as yeah, as as you know, in memorials. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that sort makes, of my theory. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, if 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 the United States were to sink, <laughs> if there, you know the Earth starts trembling and, and over over the period of the next of the, you know the next ten years, the United States were to sink underneath the sea, and you know, American refugees were after, were going all over the place. Um, you better believe there would be m- memorial structures set up in various parts of the world where where the American refugee community was large. Yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So, so that that is my theory. I think we're we're, we're all yeah. they're still around. You know, mm-hmm. there's probably maybe some knowledge hidden in different places. And I hope so. Well, we could use it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, before we wrap up, um, you, you you want to pitch a few of your books? Um, let's see. Yeah, let's see. What do we have um, in terms of stuff that's um, <clears throat> stuff that's that's current and uh, going around? I've got. The problem is I've have, I have a couple of books that have been delayed because of um, actually paper shortages. Mm-hmm. Everything's running short these days, and that's one of them. Um, but let's see. There's a book called, coming out called The Path of Druidry. That's from Sterling. It's the same company as did the occult book and the conspiracy book. Gorgeously illustrated, and it's an introduction to, to druid nature spirituality. Um, another th- These have been out for a little while, but I write fiction. And um, I did I did a whole series of novels set in you every I'm sure everyone who is listening is familiar with H.P. Lovecraft. Oh yes. And but one so what I did was I stood H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos on its head, the tentacled horrors of the good guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is you know if every every story has two sides, right? This yeah. is what things look like from the other side. The weird of Hali. Um, and uh, is the is H-A-L-I is the title of the series, and there are some other novels connected to it. But you can find that, um, well, it's, you know, wherever wherever you would normally get paperback novels, fantasy novels. Um, people can also find pretty much all my stuff um, by way of my website, which is ecosophia.net, E-C-O, 
S-O-P-H-I-A.net. If you go there and click on the bookshop um, logo on the right-hand side, that will take you to my bookshop store, which sells all my books. I'll definitely put a link of the, a link to that in the Thank notes you. of this episode, so when people are listening, they can go in there and buy some of your books. And Thank I, you. And I, and I hope some of them buy the uh, book on how to start a secret society. We we need we need more secret societies. That's one of the things that 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 I learned when I was researching this. Secret societies are what people used to organize to make political change. You know, if you don't like what the world is doing, you organize a secret society and kind of maneuver to try to make the world a better place or a worse place or whatever you whatever you want it to be. And so I think we need more secret societies. I think, you know, if, we're, if more of us were sneaking around in, you know, funny looking hats, maybe maybe it would be a more interesting country. Yeah. I wouldn't mind starting <laughs> my, my own secret society. I just don't want there to be, you go. I just don't want to be the leader of it. Well, the, actually, what was the... Um, John Crowley, no relation to the magician, has a, has a novel called Egypt. It's like Egypt with an A in front of it, okay? And one of the gimmicks in there is that some of the people in it belonged to a secret society, and they had elected this other person as leader of the secret society. But the society was so secret, the leader didn't know that he was the leader. <laughs> it solves that problem. <laughs> was, yeah, exactly. It was a great gimmick. <laughs> so maybe I am the leader of a secret society, and I don't even know well, it. Um, yeah, or maybe you can organize a sacred society and elect someone else's leader and just never tell them. Yeah. Yeah, That's genius. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. So thank um, you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great well, thank interview. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, been been a great conversation. Yeah. And, and also, you know, I've been working on, I haven't had a chance yet, but I actually made a set of dice to do geomancy. And mm-hmm. I, I just have to paint the dots on them, and then I can get started. Mm-hmm. But I had actually yeah, bought—I I, I bought a whole bunch of blank dice, and you know, I painted them mm-hmm. the color of the elements. So ah, yeah, and, and you know, just put like one dot, you know, equal sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to giving it a Excellent. try. Yeah, give it a shot. Awesome. Well, thank you again, and hang on for mm-hmm. one second, and I'm just going to play my outro. I will do that. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. And it's on Amazon. It'll change your life. Because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you loved what you listened to, don't forget, rate, review and subscribe.